My dear brothers and sisters, my message today is not a new one. Prophets of all dispensations have clearly taught the law of tithing and the principles of the gospel with regard thereto. From the beginning of time I have been taught that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. From this, from the fullness thereof. From this fullness the Lord requires that uh, he devise we dedicate one-tenth to him. It is a law of God and is rewarded by, required of his fullness. To, fa to fail to meet this obligation is to fail only in a very weighty matter on this subject he may we may read the word of the Lord in this dispensation in section 119 of the Doctrine and Covenants inquire it inquires Inquiries are received at the office of the First Presidency from time to time from officers and members of the Church asking for information as to what is considered a proper tithe. We have uniformly replied that the simplest statement we know of is the statement of the Lord himself, namely that the members of the church should pay one-tenth of their interest annually, which is the understanding to mean income. At all times when we are inclined to think it is vain to serve the Lord. We should see our faith, believe in the rich promises of God, and obey and patiently wait. The Lord will fully fulfill his rich blessings to us. Paul says, I hath not seen nor ear heard Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Even for the present life, great blessings are promised to the obedient. Take, for example, the promise to the tithe payer. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that they, there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing 
that there shall not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your your vine cast her fruit before the time of the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, as I have already noted the word of the Lord, establishing the law of the tithing, this dispensation has revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith at Far West, Missouri, on July the 8th, 1868, 1838, and is recorded in the 119th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, covering 10 days later, the Lord gave the prophet Joseph a further revelation concerning the section 120 of the Doctrine and Covenants, making, making known the proper disposition of the tithing of the church by a council of composed of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, and the Presiding Bishopric. To this day, the Council on Disposition of Tithes, composed of the eighteen presiding brethren designated in the Revelation, meets regularly every under the inspiration of the Lord to determine and approve the disbursement of the tithes of the Lord's Church. As you're well aware, the Church does not engage in deficit spending. The sacred funds of the Church are carefully budgeted so that expenditures never exceed the income. President Joseph F. Smith, in speaking on the law of tithing from this very pulpit at the October conference in 1897, said this, the purpose of the law of tithing is similar to that of the law of revenue, which is enacted by every state state, country, nation, and every municipality in the world, I suppose. There is no, there is no such thing as an organization of men for any purpose of importance without provisions for carrying out the design. The law of tithing is the law of revenue for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Without it, it would be impossible to carry on the purposes of the Lord. Time will not permit me to tell you in detail a beautiful story of tithing told by my uncle Joseph F. Smith 
in, in a, concerns and experience his mother Mary Fielding Smith the widow of the patriarch Hiram Smith had, had after she came into the Salt Lake Valley it is heart-rending and faith-promoting she said to a man at the tithing office across the street where the Hotel Utah now stands who chided her for paying of tithing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, he said. And she says, you would deny me a blessing if I did not pay my tithing. I should expect the Lord to withhold his blessings from me. I pay my tithing not only because it is a law of God, but because I expect a, a blessing by doing it. By keeping this and other laws, I expect to prosper and to be able to provide for my family. I would recommend that all of you, brethren, Read this full story in the book, Gospel Doctrine, a selection of President Smith's writings and sermons, pages 228, 229, and 230. My brethren and sisters, again I say tithing is a law of God and is required of his followers to fail, who fail to meet this obligation in full it is only a, it, it is it is to oh man a weighty matter it is a transgression not an inconsequential oversight Brethren and sisters, the law of tithing is a divine commandment and applies to all the children of our Heavenly Father. All who believe the Bible ought to believe that it is a law of God, but home, but none understand it and live it like the Latter-day Saints attempt to live it because it has been renewed to us by modern day prophets their echo again and again and words of the master render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's I bear my testimony, brothers and sisters, and witness to you the divinity of this important law of the Lord of heaven, and pray our Heavenly Father to bless you and all the saints, that, that, that the same, they may have the same testimony. And Lee, I leave my blessings with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
My dear brothers and sisters, I've been thinking what a difference we could make in each household if we as women accept and follow the wise counsel given this morning. If we respond to it wholeheartedly, not in the spirit of sacrifice or out of the sense of duty, but because of our devotion to the Lord, our response then would be out of the fullness of our hearts, with joy, with faith, and with the feeling of challenge and innovation. I am reminded of a recent visit I had with President Kimball. At that time, he had been reading again the account of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. President Kimball made the comment that Joseph was a great teacher of the welfare program. Since then, as I have read the story of Joseph, I have been impressed with his great qualities of mind and spirit that made his experience one of the greatest welfare sagas of ecclesiastical history. Recall the circumstances of Joseph's Egyptian servitude, his time in the household of Potiphar as overseer of the house. Remember the test of faith during his unjust imprisonment. Consider his interpretation of dreams that ultimately led to his high elevation in the office of Pharaoh's government. Note Joseph's obedience to the Lord's warning of impending famine. So that the land perisheth not through famine, Joseph gathered corn as the sands of the sea during the seven plenteous years. Observe the drama which unfolded as Joseph's brothers came to him to plead for food. Joseph was the agent of their deliverance. Feel the emotion as Joseph revealed his true identity to his family. And finally, recognize the discipline of Joseph's life that brought to fruition his absolute faith in the Lord, his endurance, his deep affection for his kindred. We as women in the Church can be Joseph-like in faith and in obedience and in following the direction of the Lord given us through his chosen leaders. In this time of international uncertainty, worldwide inflation and financial stress, I see the need for Relief Society to become increasingly involved in welfare matters and for its members to implement welfare principles more fully. As an organization, the wheels have already been set in motion for a closer, more efficient response in welfare. The first of these major moves was made in April of 1979 when President Ezra Taft Benson announced the establishment of priesthood councils at every level of church government. Last October, Relief Society's role in priesthood councils was explained. We directed Relief Society leaders regarding their participation and involvement. And from reports received, this instruction is now beginning to be implemented. A better working relationship between priesthood and Relief Society leaders is resulting. The next action was taken by Relief Society to carry out its responsibilities and contribute more effectively in the welfare program. That came last spring. At that time, a new administrative plan was adopted to fully utilize the stake and ward Relief Society boards. Acting under the direction of the ward and stake Relief Society presidencies, each board member is assigned to a specific division of work. She is to serve as a resource to her presidency in planning, goal-setting, and implementing the assigned facet of work. In the area of welfare, the board member, working under the direction of the president, is expected to become knowledgeable about all aspects of welfare and to help the presidency by interpreting welfare services material, studying, compiling, evaluating welfare services information, 
investigating resources, becoming familiar with church and community resources, increasing understanding, meeting regularly with the presidency to discuss Relief Society's role in welfare services, initiating goals, plan long-range goals and short-term goals with the Relief Society president, implementing approved and revised plans when directed. In this assignment, the board member extends the effectiveness of the president and her counselors, but does not assume their responsibilities, nor replace them on welfare services committees, nor does she handle confidential matters. The presidency works under the direction of priesthood leadership, as defined in the new welfare services resource handbook. We feel this new assignment will extend and strengthen the Relief Society's capability to respond to ward or stake welfare responsibilities. We ask that Relief Society presidencies become thoroughly familiar with the storehouse resource system and that they learn how to complete a bishop's order for commodities accurately and with sensitivity. The Relief Society president must complete all orders before the bishop signs them. The two signatures assure agreement that the kinds of products and the amounts are correct and that church resources are safeguarded. As Relief Society leaders, we now look forward to an era of increased activity in the welfare aspect of our work. We have a specific goal to be implemented immediately, which we offer as a challenge and a guide to Relief Society leaders and members alike. We ask in this time of inflation and great financial stress on individuals and families that our teachings of provident living be further expanded and fully practiced by every member. We encourage women to economize in creative ways, such as exchanging skills when practical instead of money, exchanging excess vegetable produce from one garden for fruits from another, exchanging rather than buying books, musical instruments, scout uniforms, and so forth. We encourage women to become knowledgeable gardeners, developing their own garden seeds gathered from their own high-quality produce, saving time and money by organizing their homes into efficient work and storage centers, and by preparing food with their own mixes. This means that all will make wise use of the resources available to them as they live each day and prepare for the future. Let us become better managers of our economic resources. The first step could be a plan, to plan a workable budget. This should be one that is uniquely right for us. Our budget, in addition to allowing for basic payments such as the butcher, the baker, and the mortgage loan banker, should include a payment to ourselves in the form of savings, even though it may be meager at first. In an interesting book entitled The Richest Man in Babylon, the story is told of a poor scribe who bargained with the rich man for his formula for economic success. The early Babylonian gave a surprisingly simple answer. A lean purse is easier to cure than endure. Learn to make your treasure work for you. Make it your slave. Pay for what you eat and wear, but pay yourself as well. Let us practice pr prudence in our homes. Become better meal planners, housekeepers, and home decorators. Let's acquire the sewing and tailoring skills that will help our, help our clothing look custom-made and that will help keep it in good repair. 
Let us make our kitchens creative centers from which emanate some of the most delightful of all home experiences. I know many women do this already. One such family does not like to miss a meal at home. The children want to bring their friends home because of their mother's excellent cooking and the, invite, the inviting table from which that food is served. The parents are always engender gracious, stimulating conversation with their children at mealtime. The mother is what I would call a provident homemaker, especially in her kitchen. When she cooks, she cooks in quantity, not only for the immediate meal but for other meals as well. She is creative and innovative with foods. She makes nourishing soups from marrow bones and soup meat such as split pea, onion, minestrone, consomme. And then she serves the meat as a main course dish with a savory sauce or garnish. Colorful vegetables are added to make it a complete and satisfying meal. Occasionally she prepares chicken from which she makes delicious chicken dumplings, chicken salad or chicken sandwiches. This homemaker uses the necks and the backs and the other, other less meaty parts that many discard to provide a base for the aromatic broth from which soups are made for the days ahead. This woman draws from a home garden of beautiful fruits and vegetables, herbal seasonings to make the family meals to, quote, please the eye and to gladden the heart, for taste and for smell, to strengthen the body and to enliven the soul, close quote. I sense in this homemaker a happy, creative spirit that makes provident living an enriched way of life. She understands, as we each should, that life is made up of small daily acts. Savings in food budgets come by pennies, not only by dollars. Clothing budgets are cut by mending, stitch by stitch, seam by seam. Houses are kept in good repair, nail by nail. Provident homes come not by decree or by broad brush stroke. Provident homes come from small acts performed well day after day. When we see in our minds the great vision, then we discipline ourselves by steady, small steps that make it happen. It is important to realize this correlation between the large and the small. Let us, as women in the Church today, make happy, provident living a lifestyle in our homes, approaching this goal in the spirit of challenge and innovation and thanksgiving. Let us see what creativity can do to heighten the standard of our living, not reduce it, to be provident without becoming penny-pinching, miserly, or ungenerous. We have many stimulating ideas displayed in the Relief Society building, and we invite you to come and see them. And then, as we attend the area and multi-region councils, and as we serve in this vital welfare work, may we become great teachers of the welfare services principles, led by chosen priesthood leaders. May we all work together, as Joseph of old proclaimed, to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save lives by a great deliverance. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, the greatest test for any generation is how it responds to the voice of the prophets. Our prophets have admonished us to increase our personal righteousness, to live within our means and get out of debt, 
to produce and store enough food and clothing and, where possible, fuel for one year. This straightforward counsel has not been followed by all of you. Some have believed and complied, while others wait until they could be sure that the storm clouds were really gathering, and still others have rejected the counsel. There was once a group of villagers who instructed their young shepherd, When you see a wolf, cry, Wolf, wolf, and we'll come with guns and pitchforks. The next day the boy was tending his sheep when he saw a mountain lion in the distance. He cried out, Lion, lion, but no one came. The lion killed several sheep. The boy was distressed. Why didn't you come when I yelled? There are no lions in this part of the country, they replied. It's the wolves we're afraid of. The young shepherd learned a very valuable lesson. People respond only to what they are prepared to believe. Now, the brethren hesitate to sometimes to uh, talk in bold terms regarding the realities of the economy and the need for individual and family preparedness. Such talk is interpreted by the black cloud watchers as a time of general calamity, and many stampede to the grocery stores to get ahead of the hoarders. In April 1976, Bishop Featherstone suggested a one-year goal for members to store a year's supply of food. Some of those who had not yet begun a home storage program rushed out and plunged deeply into debt to buy hundreds of dollars of groceries. And then they sat back as the prophet Jonah to see what was going to happen to Nineveh. It was as if Brother Featherstone had officially set doomsday as April 1, 1977. This was not his intention. The Lord's way has always been an orderly preparation, not one of second-guessing or confusion or panic. Let us be wise stewards. Let us ponder the lessons of history and profit from the experiences of those who have not heeded the prophets. Gibbons and Toynbee and Durant and other noted historians have analyzed the reasons for the fall of mighty civilizations. The reason the repetition is monotonous. In summarizing cause and effect, an American educator lists six common reasons why each civilization fell. One, they lost their religious conviction and flouted basic morality. Two, they became obsessed with sex. Three, they debased their money of its intrinsic value and let inflation run rampant. Four, honest work ceased to be a virtue. Respect for law disintegrated and violence became an accepted method of, indiv of achieving individual and group desires. And finally, the citizens were no longer willing to be soldiers or to fight for the defense of their nation and their heritage." End quote. Brothers and sisters, will our modern nations be wise enough to escape similar destruction? Are we prepared to reverse the course of history? Through the exercise of our political rights and responsibilities, through community service and through personal righteousness, we must free our nations from tyranny and from fiscal and moral bankruptcy to the extent of our ability. But we must never forget that the permanent security is possible only upon the condition that we follow the prophets of the Lord. In Section 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord reminds us that when the saints are slow to hearken to His words, He is slow to hearken to their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. And in the day of their peace, He explains, they esteem lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. Later in this same revelation, a very powerful lesson is taught in the parable of the husbandman. 
You'll recall that husbandmen were hired to plant 12 olive trees in the vineyard, to build a hedge around it, to build a tower and set watchmen thereon. And as they counseled together, however, they couldn't understand why the Lord would have need for a tower, seeing it's a time of peace. And while they held a committee meeting, contending at variance with one, one with another, they became very slothful, and the enemy came by night, broke down the hedge, scattered the frightened servants, and destroyed their works, and broke down the olive trees. It was a terrible way to learn the consequence of disobedience. How much better just to follow the simple instruction of the Master? Each gospel dispensation produces a number of valiant, faithful saints, the truly elect and noble of God. They may be one individual or an entire family. They are honored and remembered not by worldly standards but by the simp their simple and majestic faith. They have placed obedience to God as their sacred obligation. They love Him. They trust Him. They are committed to serve Him. They are the bone, muscle, and sinew of the Church of God in every age. They form the household of faith. Here are some classic statements from their ranks. I know not, save the Lord commanded me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. I feel to say to the Lord humbly, Give me this mountain, give me these challenges. I will wholly follow the Lord my God to the fullest extent of my energy and ability. Brothers and sisters, we do not always know why the Lord commands us to do certain things. His ways are not man's ways, but this much we do know. His paths are straight. They are not the crooked paths of men. Now We accept faith as the first principle of the gospel. But do we trust the Lord enough to act first and receive confirmation later? Some may call this blind obedience. But an Idaho bishop used to say, any kind of obedience is better than any kind of disobedience. Faith is not blind. However, we will often receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. If we have been disobedient in the past, let us commit today to repent and to put our house in order. Now, I believe we can accomplish this by applying the counsel of the prophets in three critical temporal uh, problems. One, the management of personal income and expenditures. Two, the dwindling of work quality and productivity. And three, the insufficiency of reserves in the form of both cash and commodity. Now, regarding the need for financial management, let me refer you to President Tanner's classic talk, Constancy Amid Change, given during the October Conference of 1979, and suggest that you study it very carefully. Proper budgeting is essential to sound management. There is no question that we all need the discipline of a budget. We've been counseled to get out of debt. This directive has been confusing to many of us over the years. How is it possible to be out of debt and buy a home and finance an education or start a business? When President Clark advised us to avoid debt as we would the plague, I believe he was teaching us a vital principle of temporal harmony. Debt is always a burden, but some debt is necessary. Sound business debt, home mortgages, and other forms of secured debt are unavoidable for most of us. However, extravagant use of credit, which comes from yielding to our emotions rather than reason, creates burden. Most of us, for most of us, consumer debt 
is dangerous and difficult to contain because it's so readily available. It can appease immediate want as well as a bona fide need. Enticing advertisements can convince us that luxuries are our, our right and our need. Isn't it interesting that a luxury once enjoyed soon becomes a necessity? Our guide for credit management should be borrow only what we must at the lowest rate available for the shortest term possible. This requires restraint of appetites and practice of the time-honored virtue of frugality. There's an insidious philosophy that advocates plunging into debt and let in letting inflation pay it off. I reject this philosophy. If we all operated on that premise, we'd completely subvert our economic system. As long as we secure our debt with equity, we can manage it. But to amass debt by pledging future earnings submerges us into financial quicksand. Now, in order to balance our personal income and expenditures, we obviously reduce expenses or increase our earnings. Too often, however, people find it easier to adjust to a tighter budget than to find ways to generate additional income. Is it possible that our members are becoming part of a conspiracy for mediocrity by being content with their present knowledge and skills? Pride of workmanship has always been the heart of a competitive free enterprise system. There are too many tradesmen who will not pay the price to become craftsmen, teachers who do not teach, repairmen who do not repair, farmers who do not farm, leaders who do not lead, and problem solvers in every field who do not solve problems. Our labor should be honest labor and quality labor. The only honorable way for each of us to share in the world's wealth is to exchange our own goods and services for those produced by someone else. The saints would be in demand everywhere and could command premium compensation if we would accept the challenge to set a Mormon standard of quality, unique because of its excellence. This is part of our religion. Let me repeat what has been taught from the beginning. Adam learned as a part of his first lesson by the Lord on economics that the earth was to be subdued and dominion gained by the sweat of brain and brawn. The divine law of work shall never be repealed for God has established it. He has cursed idleness and commanded parents in Zion to teach their children to work. There is a high price for excellence, but the compensation and soul satisfaction are truly worth it. To work below our capabilities creates a deep hunger in ourselves, an enormous waste in society. Our doctrine of eternal progression certainly encompasses our occupational progress. Each of us should be on a career path which will require us to stretch to our full potential. Now, finally, concerning the insufficient reserves, God gave a natural instinct to the animals he created to preserve their surplus against a time of need. But man has developed the tendency to squander all he harvests and to leave to chance or to, or to others his satisfaction of future needs. This is contrary to divine law. Frugality is a principle of righteousness. Consumption should never exceed our production. Economic freedom comes from the surpluses we create. Now, in addition to our reserve of food, we should build a cash reserve. We should form habits and thrift and teach our children that part of everything we earn should be ours to keep. It is true that inflation reduces, reduces the purchasing power of savings. But how much purchasing power do no savings have?
Another major reserve is home equity. Our major concern is that too many families have overextended themselves so that the debt burden overshadows the benefit of home ownership. Again, let us be sure that we do not confuse wants with needs. Now, a final concern regarding reserve insufficiency is the need to ensure against our greatest potential loss. I think we'll all agree that our ability to earn is our greatest asset. When the provider insures his life, he is insuring his future income to his family. As husbands, let us not force our wives into the marketplace to be both provider and homemaker should we have our lives cut short by premature death. We can increase their options by proper insurance planning. We should also urge each family to carry adequate health insurance. Medical costs are soaring, and trying to self-insure from personal savings is very risky. During inflation, medical costs increase faster than our savings accumulate. Now, there have always been critics of the welfare services program, but some people have a problem for every solution. Now, I'm sure that there were, there were Israelites in Egypt who did not want to leave their homes until Moses could explain how they were going to get across the Red Sea. It wasn't until they followed Moses to the shores of the Red Sea that the Lord opened up the way to them. Brothers and sisters, we do not know by what means or when a crisis will occur in our family. Residents of Michigan did not need a nationwide full-scale depression to tax their economic resources and cause many of them to lose their jobs. If I have a crippling disability for a prolonged period, my income stops just as surely as if it were caused by a national catastrophe. We tend to view distasteful circumstances in a rather detached way. But as one of the American presidential candidates recently said, if my neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. But if I lose my job, that's a depression. There are some who feel they are secure as long as they have funds to purchase food. Money is not food. If there is no food in the stores or in the warehouses, you cannot sustain life with money. Both President Romney and President Clark have warned us that we will yet live on what we produce. I would like to make one point very clear. The welfare services program of the Church is essentially you and I being self-sufficient within our own families. The Church storehouse system is a backup system for the small number of members who are poor or physically handicapped or for emergencies or disasters. There is no way that the Church as an institution intends to assume the responsibility that rightfully belongs to the individual. The welfare program was never designed to do so. Personal and family preparedness is the Lord's way. And then by uniting together to pay generous fast offerings and providing commodities from our products or projects and, and canneries, we can help our neighbor who cannot help himself. Now, most of all, brothers and sisters, with all of our storing, let's store righteousness, that we may stand approved of the Lord. In 1833, the Lord said, Therefore let your hearts be comforted, for all things shall work together for good to them that walk uprightly and to the sanctification of the Church. For I will raise up under myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness, and all that call upon the name of the Lord and keep His commandments shall be saved. Such a people will be known as a household of faith, 
the way may, that we may be found in their midst is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, my message this morning is one of deep concern. You will recall that ancient Israel was kept wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before the people were prepared to cross over Jordan and enter the Promised Land. For over 40 years, we as a people have been taught the importance of personal and family preparedness. We have been taught that the first responsibility for our welfare rests upon our own shoulders and then upon our families. Only when these sources fail do we have call upon the Church. Yet in recent months it has been increasingly evident that there are many who are not prepared. Within the last 12 months, the distribution of fast offerings and commodities by the bishops has been alarming. At the present rate of demand, the Church resources will be almost expended in a short time. As a matter of fact, some commodities have already been depleted, and this when the evidence of recession is of such short duration. It would appear that in altogether too many cases the teachings have been either misunderstood or knowingly rejected. Many of our members appear to feel that when difficulty comes, the Church will come to their aid even when they could have prepared themselves had their priorities been appropriate. Some time ago, while visiting two stakes, I saw the evidence of the point I am trying to make. Both stakes were in predominantly LDS communities. Both were affected seriously by the same severe but temporary disruption of employment. Generally, when I arrive in a new community for stake conference, I drive around the neighborhood or countryside to get a feel for the kind of people who live there. For example, are their yards well taken care of? Are their homes well cared for? Are there, are there old dilapidated barns and outbuildings, or are the properties neatly maintained and fenced? In other words, how much pride do the people have in themselves and their community? In the first stake I referred to, I saw well cared for homes and yards. It seemed that this was a prosperous so-called middle-class area. Some would have thought it an affluent area. From the number of recreation vehicles in the driveways, boats, campers, and motorhomes, as I met with the stake presidency, I commented on the apparent prosperity of the people. However, when reviewing the welfare needs of the people, I was shocked to see the demand made on the fast offering funds in the bishop's storehouse. The stake president informed me that within a week or two of the closing down of the major employer, many families came to their bishops for assistance. They had very limited reserves from which to take care of themselves. He also mentioned there were some faithful members of his stake who, from their reserves, had taken care of their own needs as well as assisting some of their neighbors. In the second stake, which was some distance from the first but which was impacted heavily by the same employment problem, I saw few recreation vehicles. As a matter of fact, I saw little evidence of affluence. Although the properties were neat and tidy, here I was surprised to see practically no fast offerings or bishops' orders being used. I asked the stake president if his bishops understood and were discharging their responsibilities for the poor and those in need. He indicated that while some families had need of, to seek assistance from their bishops, most of the members recognized their responsibility for their own welfare and were prepared to take care of themselves. You see, the priorities of the members of these two stakes were very different. Many in the first stake were not prepared and expected the Church to take care of them, while in the second stake the situation was reversed. 
The majority of the people have prepared to meet their own needs. May I also share some individual examples which are indicative of a growing problem. A few months ago, a young couple decided to cancel their health insurance. They felt they just could not afford it. The high cost of graduate school in a time of rampant inflation led them to disregard the counsel of the brethren. Then came a baby, premature with serious complications, resulting in incredibly expensive care. Heart sick and frightened, they turned first to their family, who responded with substantial help. That not being nearly enough, they then turned to their bishop, who from the fast offering supplied additional help. They would have been almost self-sustaining had they retained their insurance. A young man decided that trade school was too demanding and too expensive. He dropped out of school, got married, and took a low-paying job in a grocery store. When a baby came, he found that his income was not adequate even for the family's basic needs. Too embarrassed to approach his parents, he turned to his bishop for help. Another family chose mid, uh, Monday night sports on television in preference to family home evening. For weeks and months there was no family prayer, no gospel discussions, no reading of the scriptures, no other meaningful family activities. Now a teenage daughter has run away from home, and the parents have turned to the bishop for help. In each of these examples, the central problem could have, probably have been avoided if the members had applied the principles of personal and family preparedness. The principles apply universally to all members of the Church all over the world, notwithstanding the fact that the full welfare services program is not in place in most countries outside the United States and Canada. We, we recognize there may be legal restrictions in some countries on certain phases of the program. Nevertheless, our people should follow these teachings to the extent the law allows. I implore you stake leaders to see that the messages of this welfare services meeting gets to the bishops, the quorum leaders, and the ward relief society presidents so that the members of the Church can be taught and converted sufficiently to live the basic principles of which we speak and thus put their houses in order. The bishop is responsible to administer to the needs of the poor and needy. He determines who will receive assistance and in what form that assistance will be. His judgment is basic to the wise administration of this program. He determines whether it blesses the people or it becomes simply a dole. He also is responsible to see that no one who should properly be helped is overlooked. Earlier I indicated these principles have been taught for 40 years. As a matter of fact, as President Kimball said, they've been taught for a much longer period of time. President Brigham Young, in remarks given in the Mill Creek Ward on July 25, 1868, had this to say, among other things, quote, I believe the Latter-day Saints are the best people on the earth of whom we have any knowledge. Still, I believe that we are in many things very negligent, slothful, and slow to obey the words of the Lord. Many seem to act upon the faith that God will sustain us instead of our trying to sustain ourselves. We are frightened at seeing the grasshoppers coming and destroying our crops. I remember in, in the School of the Prophets that I would rather the people would exercise a little more sense and save means to provide for themselves instead of squandering it away and asking the Lord to feed them. In my reflections, I have carried this matter a considerable length. I have paid attention to the counsels that, have, that has been given me. For years past, it has been sounded in my ears, year after year. 
to lay away grain so that we might have an abundance in the day of want. Perhaps the Lord would bring a partial famine on us. Perhaps a famine would come upon our neighbors. I have been told that he might bring just such a time as we are now having. But suppose I had taken no heed to this counsel and had not regarded the coming time. What would have been my condition today? View the actions of the Latter-day Saints on this matter and their neglect of the counsel given. And suppose the Lord would allow these insects to destroy our crops this season and the next. What would be the result? I can see death, misery, and want on the faces of this people. But some may say, I have faith the Lord will turn them away. What grounds have we to hope this? Have I any good reason to say to my Father in heaven, fight my battles, when he has given me the sword to wield, the arm and the brain that I can fight for myself? Can I ask him to fight my battles and sit quietly down waiting for him to do so? I cannot. I can pray the people to hearken to wisdom, to listen to counsel, but to ask God to do for me that which I can do for myself is preposterous to my mind. Look at the Latter-day Saints. We have had our fields laden with grain for years, and if we had been so disposed, our bins might have been filled to the overflowing, and with seven years, and with seven years provisions on hand, we might have disregarded the ravages of these insects and have gone to the canyon and got our lumber, procured the materials, and built up and beautified our places instead of devoting our time to fighting and endeavoring to replace that which has been lost through the, their destructiveness. We might have made our fences, improved our buildings, beautified Zion, let our ground rest, and prepared for the time when these insects would have gone. But now the people are running distracted here and there. They are in want and in trouble, and they are perplexed. They do not know what to do. They have been told what to do, but they did not hearken to this counsel. President Young goes on to say, We must learn to listen to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit and the counsels of the servants of God until we come to the unity of the faith. If we had obeyed counsel, we would have had granaries today, and they would have been full of grain, and we would have had wheat and oats and barley for ourselves and for our animals to last us for years. Quoting further from President Young, When Moses was on the mount, they, the Israelites, went to Aaron and inquired where Moses was and demanded gods to go before them. And Aaron told them to bring, <clears throat> bring him their earrings and their jewelry, and they did so. And he made of them a golden calf. And the people ran around it and said, These be the gods which brought us out of the land of Egypt. How much credit was due them, just as much as to us, for not saving our grain, when we had an abundance, and when grasshoppers come crying, Lord, turn them away and save us. It is just as consistent for, as for a man on board a steamboat on the wide ocean to say, I will show you what faith I have, and then jump overboard, crying, Lord, save me. It may not seem so daring, but it is, as, it is, is it any more inconsistent than to throw away and waste the substance the Lord has given us, and when we come to want, crying to him for what we have wasted and squandered? The Lord has been blessing us all the time, and he asks us why we have not been blessing ourselves." End quote. I do not want to leave the impression that nothing has been done. 
There are those faithful saints who have their year's supply and are taking care of themselves. They know of that peace which comes from being obedient and being prepared. From letters we receive, we know that many other families are planting gardens and working toward their year's supply of food, clothing, and other necessities. Some parents are striving to get the whole family involved in temporal welfare. One recent letter reads, I am over food storage at our home. I'm 10 years old. I would like your manual called Home Storage and Production. If you can send me any other information, I'd like that too. Signed, Travis Leal. Our concern and the thrust of my message, which has been repeated from this pulpit many times, is that the welfare program rests on the basic principle of personal and family preparedness, not on church preparedness. We are concerned that because the church program includes production projects, canneries, bishop storehouses, Deseret Industries, and other visible activities, our people mistakenly are led to believe that these things replace the need for them to provide for themselves. This simply is not so. The evidence that, that this illusion exists is seen in the experience of the last few months as the draw on fast offerings and storehouses, storehouse commodities has spiraled. We are very much aware that we live in difficult times, perhaps as difficult as any recent period in history. The economy in general seems to be out of control. There is high unemployment in many areas. Inflation is running rampant in most countries of the world. Personal debt is staggering. It seems almost impossible for young people to buy a home. Many who have purchased a home have monthly payments which leave no room to handle the slightest emergency. We have been taught that we should build our reserves over a period of time, that we should not go into debt to do so, that we should buy those things we use and use them on a rotation basis, that we should use common sense in preparing ourselves to be independent and self-reliant. There has never been any extremism or fanaticism associated with these teachings. I fear we today are somewhat like those referred to by President Young in this quote. We have seen one grasshopper war before this. Then we had two years of it. We are having two years now. Suppose we had good crops next year. The people will think less of this visitation than they do now, and still less the next year, until in four or five years it will be almost gone from their minds. We are capable of being perfectly independent of these insects. If we had thousands and thousands of bushels of wheat, rye and barley, and corn, we might have said to them, that is the insects, you go away, we are not going to plant for you. Then we could have plowed up the ground, put in the manure, and let this land rest, and the grasshoppers would have not destroyed the fruits of our labors, which could have been directed to the beautifying of Zion and making our habitations places of loveliness." End quote. My brothers and sisters, I feel our anxieties are justified. It is the opinion of many that more difficult times lie ahead. We are deeply concerned about the welfare of our people and recognize the potential privation and suffering that will exist if each person and family does not accept the word of the Lord when he says, Prepare ye, prepare every needful thing, and it must needs be done in mine own way. May I again implore you, priesthood and Relief Society leaders, to see that all members of the Church everywhere understand the responsibility they have for their own welfare. That our people will be blessed to live provident and righteous lives is my prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.